Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Jim Coley, who recently retired from managing the client management team with S&P Global's Solutions Division. Over his 41 years in the financial services industry, Jim developed a reputation of creating, turning around, and growing globally diverse business development, sales, and account management teams across the capital markets, asset management, and financial technology industries. Jim started his career with diversified manufacturer FMC, where he helped invest their corporate cash balances. He then went to business school and moved over to Morgan Stanley, where he spent 16 years, and to Deutsche Bank, where he spent two more years. While at Deutsche, Jim served on the board of directors for TradeWeb, which at the time was a nascent electronic fixed income trading platform. He then co-founded and led two startup businesses, one a community bank and one a boutique investment management firm. He joined Market in 2009, which later became IHS Market, and which was ultimately acquired by S&P Global in early 2022. Jim serves on the advisory board of ResiTrade and was recently on the advisory board of Tuskegee University. He earned his bachelor's degree from the University of Southern California and his MBA from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. Jim, welcome. Congrats on your recent retirement. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Ultimately, the impetus for this particular discussion was your retirement announcement on LinkedIn, where you wrote a post with a list of 15 lessons that you'd learned during your career, which I found quite helpful. It seemed like that list really made the rounds. Did it get a lot of impressions on LinkedIn? Yeah, I was actually quite surprised. I had no idea when I wrote it what the impact would be. But at last I looked, almost 100,000 impressions. I had 400 people actually chat in the comment area. I actually had 18 reposts. Almost all the reposts were people that I didn't even know. So people yeah. reposted and reposted others. And then I had numerous people just reach out to me directly and ask for a copy of it or commented on one of them say, number 13 really rang in with me. Thank you so much. It was kind of very touching, actually. Yeah, that's really nice. LinkedIn is a funny thing. It's I find sometimes you can't get a message to the people you do know, and sometimes you get a message to people you don't know. And I was just doing thank you notes from fundraising that I'd done where I'd pretty much use LinkedIn as my communication vehicle. And I had people on there that I didn't even know who had contributed to my fundraising. And that's always, I think, helped restore your faith in humanity. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So how long did you spend putting that list together? How long had you been thinking about it? It was kind of rattling in the back of my head for about three years. I've been kicking around the idea of retiring. And then this summer, my boss, Andrew Eisen, and I decided this was the year I was going to actually retire. So in June, when we made that decision, I actually wrote down the points in my iPad. 
as a draft. And then I just kept reiterating on them over the next five months. At one point I was, I was actually at 20 and I thought, well, that's too many. And then I cut it down to 10 and I thought that doesn't seem like enough. I'm missing some important ones. And then I got sort of around 15. So I, was, I settled on 15 and I kind of like the ring of the 15 things in the title as opposed to the top 10 letterman type idea. So that's where we ended up. Yeah. And, and the search engine optimization algorithms love numbers. So whether it's 10 or 15 or 20, it helps to have something that's based on a list. They love the list. So you, um, number one, starts right off with basically your own wording of the golden rule, do unto others. You indicated that some of your bosses didn't do a particularly great job of abiding by this principle. So why do you think not all leaders get this? And how did you manage those situations when you were in them in your own career? It is hard to manage through it. I mean, I came up in an environment in the 80s in Wall Street where there was the liar's poker period and the big personalities. It was common for people to yell at each other, throw things at each other on the trading desk. And that's kind of the environment I grew up in. Fast forward now, four decades later, three decades later, that behavior is largely not really tolerated in the work environment. But I think there's still a lot of old school managers that grew up in that environment from way back when that still operate that way. The way I operate it is probably not the best way. I initially try to ignore them and let it brush off. And I find that that generally doesn't work. Then generally what I've done is gone to one of their peers and try to seek advice, and not yeah. almost like a mediation session. I guess ultimately the final stop is HR in this day and age. I've never personally used it, but I know that that will happen. But you know, my goal is always just try to outlast them and find another job somewhere in the organization and try to move on. It is tough. I mean, you face a difficult choice when you're an employee in one of those situations because there's only so much you're going to be able to do to change. As you say, there's less tolerance for these kind of people in this day and age, but they're still out there and it makes it tough on their employees. And unfortunately, sometimes those situations aren't even always recognized by their boss. They just see the good. They don't necessarily see the dirty underside, if you will. Agreed 100%. I mean, definitely it makes for an unpleasant work environment and certainly The team doesn't necessarily operate its full capacity in those kind of environments, in my opinion. Absolutely not. One of the other points you mentioned on the list, you talk about every person will experience spurious luck in their career, but it takes skill to recognize luck, to seize it, and effectively capitalize it. I thought that was a great point. What are some of the ways that you feel like you were lucky in your career, and how did you capitalize on that luck? It's kind of random. Like I said in the point, I remember when I was graduating from Morton, I was 22. It was the Great Recession of 1982. no Wall Street. I wanted to go work on Wall Street. No Wall Street firm was going to hire a 22-year-old kid out of uh, Wharton. I went and did something different. And I had a, one of those random events. Someone I met knew what I wanted to do and made a call on my behalf, really without me even knowing about it. And then I had a, next thing I knew, I had a job interview and I got hired Morgan Stanley and I made it to Wall Street. It wasn't the path I thought I was going to go. And I think about luck in my career. It's been mostly through individuals that you don't necessarily think are going to help you, but in some weird way or out of the way, they come into your life and they offer you an opportunity. And that's what I talk about. It takes uh, skill to recognize it. Just like when you see that lucky event, you have to kind of capitalize on it. Yeah. I think sometimes it's people and other times it's other things. It's other situations. I certainly can think of times in my own career where maybe going in, I didn't feel like a situation was going to be as useful as it ended up proving. And then it ended up being either much better than I expected or had some downstream benefit that I hadn't anticipated until that downstream benefit revealed itself, sometimes even years later. 
I describe the job I'm in right now as accumulating a lot of the random things that I've done over the years. And some of them I'm not sure I fully appreciated would be useful to me until I got into this particular job. So sometimes we discount luck. Sometimes we probably overplay it. We'll get to that point in a minute. But it does, you do have to capitalize on the situations that are put in front of you and you have to be open to them. Yeah. I mean, I feel like my last career at market, I went there with the idea of working there for a year and then returning back to the asset management space. And yeah, I didn't realize how dynamic and how fast it was going to grow and how many things I could end up doing there. And 13 and a half years later, I was still there. So, and it was luck to put me there in the first place. So yeah, I totally agree. In a related point, you talk about recognizing where people have benefited from tailwinds and where they faced headwinds. Was it hard in your experience when you had somebody who had faced those headwinds to get the higher ups to go along with your recommendation that somebody actually really deserved that bonus or deserved that promotion, even when their contributions might not have been as visible more broadly? It's funny you say that. We learned this thing in coaching football called positive intent. And they used to say you had to say five good things about something before you could give one criticism because people don't hear it. And they say to adults, it's three to one, but whatever. What I found with senior management is they form opinion of somebody and you've really got to reinforce that message over and over, that positive message that someone's doing something that's not luck, it's skill. And if you do that a number of times over a long period of time, you will have the opportunity to actually reinforce that individual. So it's a drip campaign for sure. Yeah, I'll use a basketball stat. I can't remember the exact name of it, but it's basically the plus minus. How much does the team score more than the opponent when you're in the game versus how much do they score relative to the opponent when you're not in the game? And that differential is at least an indicator of your value, even if you're not putting up points, putting up rebounds, making assists, shooting free throws directly, whatever the case may be, but you're just in the game and helping the team overall. It's unfortunate that we don't have something like that in the work world, because I think there are a lot of unsung heroes out there who play that role and make their teams better, but it doesn't always show up in the corporate stat line. I agree 100%. And it's your job as a manager is to find those gems, right? Right. To cultivate them and then to be their team cheerleader. So big part of the role. How'd you deal with the opposite situations where you had somebody who you felt was just gliding along on those tailwinds, putting up great numbers, but not necessarily really earning the full level of respect that maybe they were getting from the numbers themselves? Well, I think that's the tougher one because everyone looks at it and says, oh, that person, that individual is so successful. You have to use some facts and again, use a drip campaign that like, well, that person's on the good profit line business or they benefit from a client doing something that gave them a great opportunity. I don't really try to put them down so much. I try to elevate the others above them. And I think that's the only way you can do it. I saw it a lot on Wall Street. There's just a lot of lucky people that are happen to be on the right product line at the right time, the right profitability, the right asset class. And one of the lessons I learned in my first career on Wall Street, I started in money market sales, yeah. the short duration, lowest profitability. You had high yield sales guys, two points of spread in there. And they were the heroes. The money market guys were considered the goats. So that's where I learned that lesson from. Yeah. There's definitely something to be said for being in the right product and selling the product that generates the juice. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that you had people reaching out with points that have particularly resonated. For me, the one that resonated more than any was the importance of filling your open roles in a timely fashion. Because it's always amazed me how many people I've worked with will simultaneously complain about how overworked their teams are, and yet they still can't get their open roles filled. And 
it's like you're not doing anything to help yourself in those situations. I think he nailed it. I mean, I learned this one when I first started marketing from Shane Aykroyd, who was my boss for about a decade. And he used to hammer this point home to all his managers. You got to hire. So you think about the time it takes for someone to be fully productive. We did a study back in market in 2010, where we studied how long it took a salesperson to be fully productive. And we measured that by the average of the population. It turned out it took about nine months. So when you figure the time to get a requisition in, get approval, find candidates, hire them, they have to give notice, then they have their leave, then they come in, then you train them. You're looking at really a year before someone's going to be fully effective on your team at a minimum. And so if you're really underwater, you need help. People leave or need additional capacity. You really got to be thinking about that a year plus in advance. So I think this is one of the most important lessons I've learned in my career. It helps a lot to be, I mean, you, you're talking about, I think, situations where you're growing. So you can anticipate that you're going to need people. So you, you're naturally in the market. But I think even when you're not growing, you've got to be naturally in the market because somebody can come in, particularly in the US, they could give you two weeks notice, be gone very, very quickly. And then you're in a scramble to replace them. And if you're not in the market, if you haven't got a job spec written, if you haven't got relationship built with the relevant recruiters, it just extends that time and ends up extending your pain as the manager of that group. And I think to the point too, also on this is managers are under pressure, right? And I think they tend to think of the recruiting as something pushed to the side. I'll get to that later because I've got yeah. a deadline or I got a report. And I just think you got to carve out time in the calendar just to, you got to be a full-time recruiter as a manager now. Absolutely. Succession was another topic that you talked about and the importance of doing succession planning. I think there's some people out there that feel like that there's a threat in doing succession planning, right? That if you prepare somebody to take over your role, that you're putting your own job security at risk. How did you approach succession planning over the years? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a two-edged sword for many people. For some people, it's very scary. I think it's a way to exit. I was lucky, again, early in my career, I had a manager say, the sooner you train up and hire your successor, the faster I'll promote you, right? So I think it's a confidence thing. It's the philosophy that I've operated under, and it's the way I've always done it. So what I've done is I was kind of a student of competitive chess when I was young. And if you're a chess player, you learn to analyze the board in front of you and all these constant repetition of moves that possibly could happen. So in my head, I'm always constantly succession planning in my head. What if this person leaves? What do I do? Or whatever. Sometimes I even put it down in PowerPoint. I'll like try to visualize it. Like, here's yeah. what it look like because that helps me. And then you're just constantly thinking, like, if that person leaves, I know immediately what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to this person. And if those people don't exist, then you start thinking, well, how do I groom some talent? I think market, I mean, Lance and the people we worked with were really good about us working on succession planning and thinking about whether it's a nine box or whatever it is, you want, what other technique you want to use, and then just grooming your team so that you're ready to go when and if that person leaves, either internally or externally. I've worked in several firms that have done the nine box exercise, probably some a bit more in a perfunctory way than others. It really doesn't end up amounting to much in the end. But when you're forced to put down, what are my succession options for myself or for people on my team? How ready do I think those people are? What do I think that they don't have that they need? It's a great acid test for yes. what you need to do to develop them. And in the end, 
I don't know, I've sort of approached this over the years that I don't want to be in a position where I'm overly dependent on somebody because what you don't want is to be in a situation where you have to tolerate bad behavior because the person is really valuable otherwise, where you have to pay them above market rates because you don't have a good backup. So I think it's ultimately in your interest, particularly if it's your team and even with your own role. As you say, I think you owe it to the organization. That may be a funny way of thinking about it, but if you really care about the organization you work in, you want it to be successful even when you leave. It's just something that I think a lot of people really struggle with because they worry about how it's going to affect them. They don't want to be the one boxed out. Yeah, I I think it's a confidence thing. If you're confident in your own career, there's always going to be opportunities, particularly in an organization that's growing. So the faster you can groom talent and have successors, the faster you'll be able to do something else that you might be interested in doing. Absolutely. A bunch of your other points talk about well-being in a variety of fashions. And one, you advocate for taking a personal interest in the people who work for you. And you said in there, and this is something I was a little bit puzzled by, to be honest with you, Jim, that it might be controversial in this day and age to take an interest in the people who work for you. I was surprised because I'm like, I feel like, yes, we're attuned to privacy, but there's an awful lot of focus right now on monitoring employees' mental health, getting them support when they're facing issues. So what made you put in there that you thought it might be a little controversial? Yeah, I just feel like the world's evolved a little bit where you have to be a lot more careful now to your point about privacy. So it's a fine line. I'm probably not great at it, but I try to adhere to it. One of the things we learned about COVID is the strains on our employees. I saw this particularly in with individuals working on our teams that were by themselves in a small, say, apartment in a big city, no outlets, locked down. And you can see over a period of time, their mental health was changing, right? So you do, I think you have to, for their well-being and for the well-being of the team and the organization, I think you have to be a little bit in tune there. You just have to be, I think, a little bit careful how you actually approach it because you don't know really the assumptions. So I might just say something like, how are you doing? To your point, you know the firm has this hotline or this resource for you to reach out to. If it's confidential, I don't want to know about it, but I just want to let you know that we care about you and there's resources here to help you get through anything that might be bothering you and kind of leave it at that. What I do find is sometimes employees, as you develop relationships with them, will open up. They'll tell you that their parent died or their sisters or something, and you got to just tread lightly there. But I let them lead it now as opposed to, I think, maybe two or three decades ago, you were a lot more forward with it. So I let the employee kind of draw it out of you. I hear your point that you have to be a lot more careful about sort of how you approach conversations. And some people are more private than others. And you have to be careful, particularly when you're in a managerial position, not to pry, but you've really got to have your ears open. I've had situations long ago where I was on a business trip and one of our HR type people called me and said, so-and-so who was in a group for which I was responsible, just resigned. I was sort of surprised, couldn't convince him to stay. To make a long story short, the conversation kind of played out over multiple phone calls during that morning. And ultimately he sort of said something weird on the way out and it stuck with her and she called me and I told her she needed to go over to his apartment. He had overdosed that morning when he went home and she basically dragged him to the hospital and saved his life. And in some cases, I think you have to use your best judgment and intervene. And it may not feel comfortable to the employee in the moment, but what's the alternative if you're in one of those particularly really bad situations? But it's tough. It's great that we're talking about mental health now. It introduces, I think, a whole new set of challenges 
like any other social issue has for us in terms of how we build that into the workplace and get comfortable you know, really get comfortable dealing with it and talking about it and incorporating it into the way that we work day to day, just like we've had to do with diversity and many other topics over the years. And as we were fortunate both at Market and S&P Global to have good HR business partners that we could reach out to and say, look, I'm observing the following. I'm not sure exactly how to handle it. They're professionally trained and they see many more cases of this, right? So their experience there is super valuable. I would just say to any manager, if you're not sure, err on the side of caution and reach out to your business partner and just bounce the idea off them and say, I think I need to do this or I'm observing the following. You talk about physical health as well being important, not just mental health. What did you do to maintain your own physical health over the years? And did you have anybody who was a big influencer on that point for you? Well, yeah, I did have an influencer on that. It was probably earlier in my career. It was John Mack at Morgan Stanley. I remember when I made MD, he called all the MDs in at the end of the year into a room and he told a story, which stayed with me for decades, which is he was telling a story about how he was riding up the elevator just before Christmas. And there was a young intern in the elevator and he asked her if she was taking any time off for the holidays. And she said, no, I'm way too busy. I've got to work all the way through the holidays. I'm going to basically lose all my unvested, unused vacation time. And John Max said to her, and of course said to us, if you manage your personal time as badly as you manage your business, you're going to have a long, bad career. So I think this idea of balancing the personal life with the business life is something that they try to achieve. I probably wasn't always very good at it. It's hard if you work in New York City or London where you're commuting three, four hours a day, it's really hard to do that. But I think, again, one of the benefits of COVID is that it's been that free up that time. So not allowing that commute time to be fully gobbled up with work and use some of that personal time is kind of the new lesson I learned during COVID. So I bought a bike during the lockdown and tried to ride my bike and we got a Peloton and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think I kind of came back to it, but this is not a point that I always follow through my entire career, but I have come back to. Yeah. I can't say that I've done a great job through my whole career either. There were times, especially when I was traveling a lot, when I was working at McKinsey, that it was just hard and you're working really long hours and there's a lot of pressure in the team to everybody support each other and be there all the time. And that was probably the worst for me. But when I left there, joined a gym, I've pretty much been consistent in terms of maintaining at least some level of physical activity in it. It gives you sanity. I mean, whatever you end up liking to do, you've got to carve out that time for it, be it in the morning, be it in the evening, be it in the middle of the day, if you can sort of arrange that with your team. So I definitely am a proponent for that. I think it helps you be more productive at work. As John Max said, you've got to manage your time well. Yeah, I agree. How did you encourage your teams to take care of their own physical health? Well, I try to be as much as I can, as much as they allow from a privacy standpoint, be fully invested in their lives. So I kind of know what they're doing and what they're not doing, where they're going on vacation, what they're doing on the weekends, what they're doing with their kids. So I generally, if I see them, I'll say, well, did you get a chance to work out today? Or did you hit the gym? I had one guy working for me, he's a big kickboxer, Michael. So I'd say, did you get a chance to go do your kickboxing last night? Just kind of letting them know that it's okay to go and take time off to go do something that's good for their physical health. And also encourage them to their teams to do the same thing. So again, Big lesson learned during COVID, I think. Yeah. And hopefully, as we're all kind of coming back into, I'll say, a hybrid work model for a lot of companies, we continue to capture some of that time at home to build in the things that help us recharge our battery on a more regular basis than just taking the periodic vacation. 
I think the lesson I learned is don't let that commuting time consume your work full work time. Maybe it consume mm. some of it, use some of it for personal time. Yeah, absolutely. Leaders really struggle with this. And there may be the enlightened leader like a John Mack on this point, but how can leaders do this without having to resort to 4.30 a.m. or 5 o'clock in the morning workouts when they want to get their gym time in? It's, it's hard to imagine a leader hitting the gym or going for a run in the middle of the day just because the optics of that traditionally haven't been great. You know, I'm a little old school, so I kind of agree with that. I've never been a midday gym person. So I try to do it just before, just after the day's over. So six yeah. or seven in the morning or right at 5 p.m. If others want to do it, and you know, I've had people on my team that said, I'm going to go for a midday run. I, I let them do it. I encourage it. It's just for me personally, I just grew up with that philosophy. Yeah. I used to go for a run with my boss when I was in the Air Force, which made it easier since it was with him. But I don't think I've done too much of that since then. I just, I tend to prefer doing it in the morning as well, but generally not quite so early as five o'clock. So anyway. On another theme, you talk about the importance of making time for personal learning and reading. How disciplined were you about this? And what kind of learning or reading sources did you find most helpful to your own career? Yeah, you know, in the old days when you were commuting in on the train, you had that hour, hour and a half of time to do the reading. Of course, then we go to the lockdown, that time disappeared. So I just took a trick from one of my managers, uh, Nestle, who worked for me at Market. She used to put focus time was actually literally the calendar in invite in her calendar and she blocked yeah. it. So I started doing the same thing. I started doing focus time from seven to eight in the morning or whatever it was. And that's where I did my reading. I did the outside reading. I did local news and world news and the business news. And then I always kind of finished off with sports so that I was fully ready to go. And no one could bother me during that time period, much like being on the train. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've taken a traditional train to work. I do have my bit of a tube ride in the morning, which generally is consumed with reading something that's business oriented, not the paper so much anymore, but a book or something like that. I find that the industry, the dailies that come out via email about what's going on in the industry that I'm in helpful. And I would say beyond that, one of the other things I've always found helpful over the years is meeting with companies that are doing some leading things in our industry, Mm -hmm. particularly on the tech side. And keeping up to date on what's going on in that respect and what other companies in the industry are doing. So those are a few of the things that I've found helpful. Yeah. And I think when we hire interns out of college, one of the first things I tell them is you cannot do enough reading, outside reading on the industry, on your clients, understanding what they're doing, on your clients' competitors, their products. So I think it's a really important part of your development. Yeah, absolutely. A little bit back on the well-being point, one of the points that you talk about was you say, if you can do do it financially, if it's financially feasible, dial back a bit when your kids are in their middle years, like between the ages of five and 15. Is that something that you did? Is that something that you didn't do and you wish you'd done? Kind of curious to hear your own story here. I got a lot of comments on this one. A lot of people said, God, I don't, I don't try to do this. For me, it kind of just happened. I, I was working at Deutsche Bank, Franchi Jane, who just recently, unfortunately, passed away. And it was kind of my last job on Wall Street, and I left uh, in one of those downturns, so there was no opportunity to go back. So I was kind of unemployed for a period of time, and then I got into the startups. But you know, the nice thing about startups is if you're the boss, you can kind of do what you want to do, right? So you can kind of take off the afternoons. And I started just being with my kids at that kind of age, and I realized that spending a lot of time with them at that period of time, by the time they get to high school and start going to college, they kind of don't need you for a while. That kind of five to 15 range is really, I think, super important. And if you can do it, if you can find a way to do it, I think it really helps you with your bonding with your children and their development. So I really encourage this one. It's hard for people to do. A lot of people didn't 
maybe have the financial means that I did to allow myself to kind of take a decade off, so to speak. But I do think if you can do it, it's a good way forward. Yeah. And I think back to like when I have a stepdaughter who's a bit older, when she was in elementary school, middle school, that's when I was traveling the most. So I missed anything she was doing from a sports perspective that was in the afternoon. I missed, I was always happy when she played like a nighttime basketball game because I could actually get to one of those. There was a point where my daughter, our middle one said to me, daddy, how come none of the other daddies travel as much as you do? That was a killer. Fortunately, soon after that, I was out of McKinsey and then working for Fidelity. And I can't say that I dialed my hours back a ton, but at least I was in town. So I had a bit of flexibility. And this coming back to what we talked about a little bit before, people not necessarily coming into work five days a week anymore. You can juggle around your kids' events better today, certainly than you could have 15 or 20 years ago before we had technology like this to be able to do meetings and take advantage of it. That would be the advice I would give people is take advantage of it. The kids, they're going to get older day by day, whether you're home with them or not. Yeah, I think, again, we learned in COVID, and I really encouraged my team and my management team and have them to manage theirs. Don't get caught up anymore on the eight to five. If your team is doing what is expected and necessary, you'll know. For example, I mean, I'd be on email at seven o'clock at night, and I'd have someone in Europe email me at midnight, and I'd ask them, like, what are you doing? Well, They'd say, you know, I was out all day with my mother. She was ill and I had to take her to the doctor and I needed to catch up. I think most people now are professionally grown up that they will allocate the hours and it just doesn't necessarily have to be an eight to five time period. So if you need to take an afternoon off to go do your daughter's baseball game, go do it and then work that evening, just catch back up. So I think that's the lesson I've learned. Yeah. I mean, some firms have the idea of core hours. When I was working heavily at Charles River Development, software focused firm, Interestingly, in a bank that seemed to be always on once they were acquired by State Street, they would do their daily standups. Their agile development teams would do their daily standups, typically sometime between like 10 and 11 in the morning, which basically meant that if you wanted to come in at 10 and work till six or seven, you could do that. If you wanted to come in at seven in the morning, you would obviously be there for it. But they had kind of adopted that principle of having those meetings later in the morning to give people a bit of flexibility. And That was a nice thing that they had sitting inside the bigger bank that tended to start meetings at seven in the morning most days, East Coast time. Switching gears, you mentioned a minute ago that you had done a startup after the sort of, I'll say the dot-com bust and downturn in the early 2000s. You mentioned in your view that everybody should spend time in a startup at some point in their careers if they can. You were involved in a few. What were some of the bigger lessons that you learned in those years and how did they translate into the work you did when you returned into more of the bigger corporate world? Well, the first lesson I learned is no matter what your worst case scenario is for your business plan, it's going to take three times longer, twice the amount of money that you thought it was. And it's all pretty much true, no matter what you think. I think the second lesson I learned is you're only as good as your founding partners. And this one was a painful one for me to learn. But if you have a partner that's not up to snuff, so to speak, it's really going to inhibit your business case. So I think those are the two main points I learned. I think the reason I put this one in there is I think it teaches you a lot of humility and it teaches you to really multitask and really learn to be a great time allocator because as a CEO or part of a startup, there's just a tremendous amount of demand on your time because everything seems like it's on fire. You like you to put out everything. And You've really got to learn to prioritize what is super important and what has to get done today versus what you put off for tomorrow. And that's the part that you can carry back to big business, right? That that feeling of being overwhelmed sometimes and how do you just 
block out certain things and let other things get done and, and let that time allocation. Yeah, definitely. I think your point about humility, a lot of people, particularly if they're used to working in big firms, they're used to HR, they're used to finance, they're used to a cleaning staff, they're used to a facility staff that deals with everything, they're used to IT staff. When you're in a startup, most of the staff members can be found by looking in the mirror. You end up having to do a bit of everything and it teaches you the value of all of those things that probably you underappreciated when you were working at a big company. And and to your point, your time, there's only so much of it, right? So you have to be really focused on your own time and also the time of the people around you because they're just, it's not like there are dozens of people doing marketing or dozens of people doing sales or dozens of people doing anything. There may not be any doing it full-time. So you've got to be super, super conscious about that. Another point, elevator pitches. You you talk about the importance of having an elevator pitch. Obviously, that's a very important thing for a client-facing person. And you were in client-facing roles for a good chunk of your career. But how important do you think it is for non-client-facing people? And what were some of the unexpected ways that having a good elevator pitch benefited you over the years? I'd go out on meetings, particularly C-suite meetings, where you take an RCEO and meeting another CEO, and you'd watch people use kind of the marketing points that were there for how they explain what the company does and so forth. And you see confusion on your client. You think about the senior level folks, they probably don't know much about the company. They certainly don't know how their own company is using your products or services or what the workflow might be. And it just adds confusion. So what we did when I ran account management at Market, which is basically, we're just interfacing with the C-suite, we practiced the elevator speech and practiced it eight words, 30 words, two-minute pitch. And we had different pitches that we'd use. And we'd all use the same key words over and over again so that it was consistent. Your point about non-client-facing people is, I think it goes back to that point about luck. So you never know when you're going to meet that individual, right? Even if you're in the back office or in something that's not client-facing, there could be an individual come across and if you don't have that kind of elevator pitch down, like someone say, well, what do you do? Like at a cocktail party or going up in an elevator. If you don't have that pitch really well refined so that you can wheel it out, so to speak, and use it, you might miss that opportunity, that luck opportunity for a chance encounter that might be something that could change your career. So I encourage everybody to practice it. Yeah. And you had applied it, I think, in the construct of company that you're working for or the products that you're selling, but certainly, you know, as more people start doing things on the side or start participating full-time as freelancers in the gig economy or whatever you want to call it, it also applies to their personal brand, right? You hear a lot of discussion about people's personal brand and being able to convey and articulate your personal brand. And as you say, I mean, you never know where those opportunities are going to pop up. Could be you bump into somebody who's with somebody you don't know in a train station or at an airport or you know, at a restaurant or wherever. And those are opportunities potentially where you serendipity might actually happen in your favor. And so I think it definitely has value. Your point about the marketing people and defensive marketing people, when marketing people develop a pitch and it doesn't work, it's kind of on the people who are out with the clients to come back and say to them, that didn't really resonate. Or I saw confusion on the client's face and rework the pitch. I feel like sometimes too often what ends up happening is marketing will put something together that doesn't fully hit the mark as often is the case when somebody takes a first stab at something, sales goes out, doesn't work the first time, they toss it out and then they start making up their own scripts. I mean, that just feels like it happens an awful lot of the time. And then everybody says it in their own words. And then the client's like, well, you say this and you say this and you say this, and what is it really? 
which is almost worse than having maybe a marketing stab that didn't quite hit the mark the first time. I think you nailed it, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I haven't retired yet, Jim, but I'm not that many years behind you. (laughs) And so uh, I've seen this movie before. Let's just leave it at that. A few last points. You talk about the importance of building your network. Ironically, I was just reading a summary of Keith Perazzi's Never Eat Alone, which is a really great book on the importance of networking and all the ways it can help you in your career. Did you do a good job of following your own advice on that front? I'm going to have to be honest on this one. (laughs) Not initially. I went to Wharton, as I mentioned earlier, I was working full-time, putting myself through college, and I learned this lesson the hard way. And a lot of the people that I went to school with went on to do great, amazing things. And I had that opportunity back then to get to know them and cultivate those relationships. I really wasted that opportunity. Something that I try to teach my children when they went to college. It was really kind of with LinkedIn and kind of going back into the workforce and the ability to connect with people that I started redeveloping. And what I saw at market was relationships I built at Morgan Stanley, 20 years later, those people all scattered and you didn't just stay at the investment bank. They went to asset management or they went into private equity or into government. And those relationships became very valuable. And then you were able to reconnect again and use it. So it's something that I learned later in my career. I wish I'd learned it earlier in my career, but I think it's super important. And it really probably starts maybe back even in high school, college age. Yeah, I look, I'll admit I as well did not put enough focus on this probably until I was in the middle years of my career. When I was at business school, I was dating, who ultimately became my wife. I lived off campus the second year. We had her daughter, my stepdaughter with us full time. And I was in kind of a completely different mode, but I focused on the academic part of it, which is good, but not enough on the sort of the community part of it. And half the value to me, if not more than half the value of going to a good business school or to any kind of good school in any degree area is the people around you and just getting to know them. And I really undervalued that. LinkedIn's probably been a great savior for me in the end, because it's allowed me to reconnect with a lot of people that I've worked with over the years and rebuild those ties. But it would have been a lot better, I think a lot easier if I had not let them, those opportunities not come about or deteriorate in the early part of my career. Great. I 100% agree. You talk about the importance just in terms of connectivity, meeting clients in person when you're in a client-facing role, probably would be remiss not to get your take on the importance of in-person connection and how that affects your thinking on remote working and hybrid work. I've got a little bit of an intense personality. I always felt like if I didn't get a chance to meet the person and get to know them on a personal, on a one-on-one basis, they might not open up as much. So I always try to, no matter what size client, small, large, try to get out with them and try to do something outside the office also, back to that personal establishment. But more so than that, you try to get them to know that you know their company, you know their situation, create that relevance, so to speak. And you can't do that really over the phone. It's something that has to be, I think, personally done on a one-on-one basis. So I think it's super important. Obviously, COVID made it difficult in the lockdown for some period. We are starting to open back up now, and people are starting to allow us back in their offices. So I think it's the number one way. It's the way I've sold all my career. And I think I really encourage people to make the personal connection. Yeah, it's where I'm obviously in the middle of this transition back. Some firms are further along with it than others. Some will go back to more of the old way of working than others. And it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I talk about this on on these discussions a fair amount because it is playing out as we speak. And it's a situation that we really haven't ever all experienced before, right? What we went through with the lockdown and now how that's changing the world of work. And we will see how it plays out in the long run. 
Yeah, and I don't think, I mean, Zoom calls or team calls or WebEx calls are important in a way of life. It's not the same as being in the room personally with somebody, right? Or on a golf course or out in a meal or whatever it might be. So yeah. I really encourage people to get out from the desk. Yeah. Last point, you talk about leading from the front, like communicating the clear path forward. I think you may have invoked a military leader in there by reference. How do you balance that style of leadership against stepping back a little bit, giving your team the opportunity to come to the solution themselves, giving them the opportunity to fail and learn from it? Have you thought about that trade-off over the years? Yeah, I think the point I was trying to make is you got to have the conviction to do what is right and set the path and not ask your team to do anything you wouldn't do yourself. That's the lesson I learned. But to your point, you do have to have the team grow. They have to learn. So I'll use a hiring analogy. We do at a market in S&P, we'll do a round robin hiring. I'm sure most companies do it that way. And there'd be many times where I was the only no, like, I don't think we should hire this person. But I would say the hiring manager, I'd say, if you really believe this is the person that's going to the person to make a difference, you take ownership and you go ahead and do it. And Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. The only time I would overwrite them is if I thought it was a fatal mistake, like I was really going to do something bad. But I would let them make mistakes that were not necessarily fatal as that learning point. And I think they then learn. And then I can think of an example right now. I'm not going to use a name, but I can think of an example of one of my managers um, just where I just was at at S&P came back and said, you know, you were right three years ago. We shouldn't have hired that person. I thought I had it. I didn't. I really learned a lot from that. And I thought, well, that wasn't a fatal mistake. And that person learned a valuable lesson. So do things like that where they can make a mistake and it won't kill us. There was a deck sort of espousing the Netflix management philosophy that made the rounds probably seven or eight years ago that one of the points that really stuck with me from that is there's kind of there's big commitments, big investments and smaller ones. And don't sweat the small stuff that mm-hmm. we tend to spend a lot of time worrying about. Like if you think about the downside, particularly to use your words, it's not fatal, or maybe even it's not fatal, it's trivial. If there's a downside other than maybe a little bit of reputational embarrassment, maybe why not give your team the opportunity to try something? I think there's just too little conviction and confidence in giving teams the ability to learn. And as a consequence, they don't fully flourish because they're just coming in and executing every day. Absolutely. So what's that for you? I know you've got some travel coming up. Are you done? Are you looking to do something part-time? Would you ever go back to doing something full-time or are there boundaries around which you're kind of putting the next stage of life? Depends on who you ask in the Coley household. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. You ask my wife, she says, I'm done. If you ask Adam Gansler, who's you know, now the president of uh, market intelligence at S&P and a good friend of mine, you love working, you're never going to stop working. So there seems to be a difference of opinion. I've learned a lot. I've been blessed to work in three different industries, Wall Street, asset management, now FinTech. I've spent four decades doing it. And I'd like to continue to use that knowledge of what I learned to help others, whether that's doing board work, which is kind of what I'm initially thinking, or whether advisory board or board or something along that lines. I think that's what I'd like to do. That being said, I've got a lot of inbound calls just in the last month since being, quote, retired for yeah. full-time jobs. And it's nothing I'm going to look at in the next few months. I've got some, as you said, some bucket list travel on finish, but we'll see how long the retirement lasts. So maybe check in in six months. Yeah. Well, you probably attract a lot of inbounds just by virtue of your 15 points making the rounds on LinkedIn and all the impressions that you talked about at the beginning of our call. I'm going to give you just one. If you had to give just one piece of advice to your younger self or to somebody else who's thinking about their career, what would your top piece of advice be? 
I always emphasize, even with my own children who are now in, in business, the benefit of international experience. For me, I think the one I learned, I did have the benefit of working in London for a very short period of time. But I think with the way the global economy is evolving, working in APAC, yeah. I think Getting experience in Asia somewhere for some point of your professional career is, I think, going to only age you down the road. I didn't personally have that opportunity in my career. I wish I did, but I would think that's the number one advice I would give people. Fair enough. Jim, thanks for making the time to do this. I appreciate it. It's good to kind of walk through the list and get a little bit of color on some of the points that you covered in your post a few weeks ago. So again, thanks for making time this morning. I appreciate it. I appreciate it being invited. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. And enjoy that bucket list vacation you've got coming up. Thank you. I'd like to thank Jim for joining me today to discuss his list of 15 things he learned during his career. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular insights, you can become a Pathwise member. Again, it's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.